This is from Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 15. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses writes, about, Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend to heaven? that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, it is in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. Well, good morning. Welcome to church. Welcome to Trinity Community Church. We are so glad that you're with us this morning. Uh, my name's Cam. I work for an organization called Athletes in Action, do some ministry on campus, uh, and I'm a pastoral resident. So I come up here and talk from time to time, and uh, I love it, man. I love this church. Uh, Trinity Community Church, we exist to practice the way of Jesus together for the renewal of all things. And I just want to stop for a second and say this is a pleasure and a joy and such a gift. I don't want to take it for granted that we get to be together this morning, that we get to worship and praise and sing and be together. And that is a gift. Um, but we're also longing to participate in the renewal of all things with God as he is bringing about all things um, and we're in a series on renewal. I don't know if you got the pamphlet, but it said that we are here for God's heart for renewal. And we're kind of coming to a close on this series. I don't know what week we're in, uh, but it's like more than five. So I lose track after five and we just keep rolling. Um, but renewal and revival have been some phrases that we've been throwing around. And I don't know if you, if you don't come from a church background, if you don't come from uh, saying these types of things, that's like never a word you would ever hear is renewal or revival. Um, but let me, let me explain these things for a second. Renewal is what we would define as just the ongoing, ordinary work of God, that it's his ordinary growth in Christ through the presence of God, not just uh, information transfer, but that we are actually growing from the inside out by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is renewal. This is what God is doing all the time. But we also believe that even in this cultural moment that God has a heart for revival, which is renewal intensified. It's, it's, it's this ordinary growth multiplied, um, bigger, stronger, faster than you could normally do. It's the ordinary stuff, just a little extra, okay? Revival. And we've been in this 
uh, uh, phase of talking about four different elements that tend to bring about revival, this intensified renewal. And uh, a couple weeks ago, Austin talked about extraordinary prayer. And he, he talked about how all of this is birthed from seeing God for who he really is and us approaching his throne with confidence and praying big prayers, not just the normal daily bread type of prayers, but getting lost in the vision of God in extraordinary prayer. And then last week, Jeremy talked about a gospel reawakening. He talked about how the word became flesh and dwelt among us in John chapter one, and that this gospel actually renews and revives our heart and it becomes real, not just in our minds, but in our hearts. And the next two we're going to talk about, I'm going to talk about faith sharing today or gospel proclamation. And the next week, Jeremy will talk about the presence of God, which this this whole thing is all about. But we're going to talk about faith sharing. Hello. Everybody loves to share their faith, right? No. Um, Here's the thing. In our cultural moment right now, like everybody's fine with faith. Nobody's anti-faith. But for you to tell me that your way of living is the right way to live and what you believe is actually the right thing to believe, ah, no, like I don't, you can hold that, bro. I don't want that, okay? Faith sharing, even when I say it, or evangelism or gospel proclamation, it comes with all of this baggage. It comes with shame and fear, the shame that we don't do it enough, the fear that I'm going to get rejected, that people are going to uh, not, not going to want to associate with me or hang with me. There's this whole baggage that we bring of the reputation of the church, right? Like even this week, uh, this lady was cutting my hair and we were just talking and I was like, when's the last time you've been to church? And she said like 20 years ago, because somebody told my husband that he was going to go to hell if he didn't believe what he believed. And we haven't been back since. And I felt the baggage as I'm getting my hair cut of the previous generations and what the church has been, that the church at sometimes has a reputation that we don't want to share in. But as, as people who love and follow Jesus, we're called um, to, 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 to participate with God as he brings us in, as he draws us in, and he actually longs to send us out. So my, my heart for this morning and what I think the passage is going to lead us into this morning is where evangelism or sharing our faith, it becomes something that's not something that we feel bad about, not something that we uh, are afraid of, not something that we feel guilty or ashamed of, but that God through his spirit and by his grace would actually allow us to see a big vision of what God is, is calling us into and that we might actually see it as a joy. I think of a When I was like 15 years old, I could never put on weight. I was like 6'3", like 110 pounds, like it was horrible. Um, I wish I still had that problem, right? Like, amen, like the the old days. But um, my dad used to make these protein shakes for me all the time. And he'd be like, because he just loved me. He like wanted me to, you know, get big and buff. So he'd always have these protein shakes for me every day, making them for me. I hated them. They tasted so bad. So my dad would give me these protein shakes and I'd like take maybe a sip and I would just leave it in my car. And then over time, right, like it just protein shakes in your car in the summer, like that's not a good thing for anybody. And then my dad would get back in the car and he'd be like, bro, you're not drinking your protein shakes because I didn't have any vision. Like I didn't see why I would do that. But now it's getting dark, right? And I read this article that vitamin D is like basically sun in a bottle and it makes you happy. So you know what? My dad doesn't need to tell me to take vitamin D. I take it on my own because I see that this can make me happy, (laughs) right? So my heart for this morning is that we would see sharing our faith and evangelism and all these different things, gospel proclamation, not as something that we have to do or this fear that comes with it, but that it would actually be something that we would long to participate in with God by the power of his Holy Spirit. So in the passage, we're going to see that Paul 
He, he, he goes through three different general movements, okay? One, he talks about a burden that he feels. And he says this burden comes from believing the gospel, and that will lead to us being sent. So three movements, a burden, believing the gospel, and being sent. Let's pray, and let's ask God to meet us here this morning. Father, we praise you for who you are, that you are worthy of worship and praise and adoration. And um, every song we sing this morning, you are, you are more than worthy. And we thank you that you love people, that you sent Jesus out of an overflow of your love for humanity. And we ask this morning that you would grant us the power to see your love for us and as individuals, but also for our neighbors, our friends, and the whole world. God, I have nothing new to offer this morning, and we don't need more information. We don't even need more practicals, but we need to encounter you. We need to meet with the God of the Bible. Would you make these words that we just read, this old book that was written 2,000 years ago, would your spirit breathe on it this morning and make it come alive? Would you meet us here this morning, acknowledging that we come in here um, tired and fatigued and lonely? God of grace, would you meet us here this morning? Would you draw us in that you might send us out? Amen. Um, do we have any readers in here? Anybody like to read? Yeah? It's like the not proud thing. It's like, eh, I kind of like to read, you know? Um, I never read until I like, became a Christian. That's like most people's testimony, right? Like, I never read until like I wanted to like know Jesus more, so I started reading. Well, I just started reading a couple years ago, um, and it was still really hard, but then I got this new piece of technology. It's called the Kindle, okay? Not the Kindle Fire, okay? That's weak sauce, but the actual Kindle, like it's made for reading. Does anybody have a Kindle? Yeah, yes, okay. That is the absolute way that you should read a book, okay? You should never read a hard copy ever again. I'm just going to share that up front, okay? You shouldn't read it. Um, I don't say that because I think I'm better than you, I, just, I say that actually because I think I'm worse than you because I can't. I'm, not, I'm just like not that smart. It's really hard for me to retain information. But the Kindle, you can like highlight it and then it's there on your computer forever. Like you don't need to flip the pages. It's there. It's, it's the absolute best. Okay? I tell people all the time, hey, man, you need to read a Kindle. And they're like, oh, I love to turn the pages. So again, I'm not better than you. Maybe I'm worse than you. I don't get caught up in the nostalgia of books. I just don't get it. Okay? I love the Kindle. And I tell people about the Kindle all the time okay? because I think it's better than books, okay? So that's just, that's just the way it is, okay? In a, that's a very small version of what I think Paul is experiencing here in Romans chapter 10, okay? He says this, brothers and sisters, it is my heart's desire and prayer that they may be saved. He's saying, you know what really bothers me? You know what really gets to my heart? You know what really drives me to my knees to pray? It's that people don't know Jesus He's not saying it in a judgmental way where he says, man, it's just these guys, you know, who don't know Jesus, but it's a burden that he feels. It's like in Acts chapter 17, okay? Paul comes into this city, it's, it's, it's called Athens, and he comes in and he has this like revelation where he says, this is a city full of idols, where these people are worshiping other gods, not, 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 just, not just things, but they're actually worshiping other gods like Athena and Nike, and you guys took mythology, so you get it, but all these other gods, and he walks in, and it's really interesting because the passage says before he says anything and before he even sees anything, it says that he felt great distress. That he walks in not with judgment to say, 
I cannot believe these guys, you know, worshiping these dumb gods. But it comes in with empathy and compassion. And he says, hey, you're worshiping something that's lifeless. You're worshiping something. You're loving something that will never love you in return. It's going to fail you and you're missing out. That he feels this burden, this deep burden and hurt for people. And that's, that's exactly what he's expressing right here in verse 1, that his heart's desire is that they might know Jesus. So context, there's two, different, uh, there's two different people groups that he's addressing, right? We heard him talk about the Greeks and the Jews, and we have these two different people who are living out of two completely different narratives. The Jewish people for years have had God's law. They, they've, they've, had, they've been taught different things from the Torah, and now they are entering into this place, and, and he's saying, I see your zealous I see that you long for righteousness, but you're missing it. You're missing the point. See, see the Jews are, 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 in a way, a representation of our society that I would just call, that we would call religious. They're all about religion. They're, they're, they're still self-focused, but they're trying to do these things by themselves. And he says, I understand why you would do that. He said, you're trying to make a righteousness all of your own, and it grieves me because you'll never do it. He says, no matter how good you are, no matter how good you think you are, all of the right things you could ever do, it's not going to be enough and you will eventually fail yourself. And he feels grieved for them. And then he points to Jesus, that it's all about Jesus. He's the culmination of everything you want. The law was never meant to be the point, but the point was meant to point to something. The law was meant to point to something bigger and it develops a burden in him for these people. But not only that, there's, there's, there's the Greek people that he would, we, we, would, we might deem as the irreligious people. And these are the people that we would normally say, you know, the non-Christians, the non-believer. This is a way to miss it too. But, but the Gentiles were in pursuit of something good and true as well, looking for the good life, pursuing their passions, whatever made them happy. Right? R- really similar to our cultural moment where we have these true desires these things that we long for, but we have the means to get there is skewed. Mark Sayers, this, this Australian pastor, he says it this way, that our culture right now, we long for the kingdom. We long for the kingdom of God, but we don't want the king. And we have to understand this. Romans fourteen seventeen says this, for the kingdom of God is a ma- not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So let me explain these three things. Righteousness, which literally means right relationship with God and with other people and with yourself. So most scholars would agree that Paul's not just talking about a righteousness that's imputed to us from God, but also for this longing for a cosmic, holistic righteousness. To be said another way, righteousness is when things are made right. It's synonymous with another biblical word, justice. And everybody wants justice. We have this innate desire for things to be right and true and just. I don't know if you guys remember the election a couple weeks ago. That was crazy, right? Glad that's all gone and there's no more drama ever again. But I had two different people text me from two different, no matter where, where you're at in here, I had two different people text me from both sides with almost the exact same text. Cam, we have to stand up for what's right. And whatever narrative they were believing, which is right and true and just, either way, it pointed towards there's a deep desire for things to be right. Can we have to stand up for what's right and just and true. And even in the NBA, right, we had guys with justice on the back of their jersey saying, we long for things to be fair and right and just. That's what the world longs for, righteousness. We also long for peace. 
both the external and internal peace. Anxiety is through the roof. Even as we enter into COVID, the anxiety and depression is higher than ever. I read a study that said that the average level of anxiety from people between 14 and 22 years old, the average baseline level of anxiety would match that of someone 75 years ago who would, who would have been put into a mental institution. That our anxiety is higher than ever. So we long for peace. We long for this inner tranquility when the pressure is off that we don't need anymore, that we have peace. And we also long for peace with our brothers and our sisters. We long for reconciliation amidst relationships. We long for it. And joy. Joy. We, we long for joy, happiness, pleasure. Basically, why we do everything is for us to be happy. I took a personality test the other day that said my core sin. Those are the best personality tests, right? Like the ones that tell you what your core sin is. Like sign me up for that one. But anyways, this one told me your core sin is gluttony. <laughs> I was like, dang, I didn't think that. But I do love me some Oreos. Um, I can crush a, a sleeve or two of double stuffed easy but in a, in a weird way, that's not actually a horrible desire. It points to our desires for joy and for pleasure. Neuroscientists actually say that there's one section in our brain that never stops developing. And they call it the joy center. That our, our, The joy center, the center of our brain, that there's a part in our brain that has this insatiable desire for joy and it will never stop growing. It points towards the God who wired us to experience and long for joy. Even right now, as we, as we celebrate Advent and Christmas, the angels, when they appeared to Mary, they said, for it will be good news of great joy. The message is for joy. God has wired us to pursue and find joy. So we long for these things, righteousness, peace, and joy. And this is what Paul sees as he sees them. And it's not in a judgmental way, but it's a grief to say, I see what you long for. I know that you want these things, but you're missing the means. You want the kingdom but you're dismissing the king and it grieves him. Notice his posture, brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for the Israelites that they may be saved. Even a couple verses ago in in Romans chapter nine, he says this, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people. And this anguish, it leads him to pray. See, Paul believes the truth about God, and because he cares about those around him, he prays. Our our prayer lives, whether we pray or what we pray, they tend to reveal what truly lies in our heads, in our hearts. And what Paul is saying is what drives me to my knees is when people don't know Jesus. What drives me to my knees is when people are longing for good things, but they're not experiencing it because they don't have the right means. And right about now, we're probably saying, well, now I feel bad because I don't feel bad, you know? So we're asking this question, how do I get this burden? Because when I, when I read this, I, I feel the gap in my own life. The gap that I see from, from, from how I actually feel about the world to how Paul feels and how we are actually supposed to feel about the world. And what Paul would lead us into next is to say, this is how you close the gap. You believe the gospel. You believe it for yourself, a burden for people and humanity it's tethered to our own belief in the gospel. And well, what's the gospel? The, the gospel is what Christmas and Advent and this whole book, this whole Bible is all about. In, in, in the Greek, it, it means good news. Good news. Which, just to be like 
overly cheesy right now. I have this red news app in my phone that is just flooding me with bad news, anxious news, news that makes me afraid, news that makes me scared, news that just makes me all the time tight and tense. And our faith, our book, everything that we're building, everything on this, it centers on and hinges on good news. That we have a countercultural news in and about itself that is good. And this good news is what simply what Jeremy explained last week, that life with God is available through Jesus entirely by grace. This is what it means. Life with God is available. And if it feels repetitive that we talk about the gospel all the time, it's because that's the biblical way to do it. We're sitting here in Romans chapter 10, Romans chapter 10, and Paul has probably explained the gospel 10 times by now. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4. But here again, he brings us back to the gospel. He says this, verses 8 through 10. He says, but what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning the faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. So Paul uses this word justified, um, which one of my old friend's grandmas told me this is what it means. Justified is means that God looks at you justified or just if you'd never sinned. But not only that, it's just as if you'd always obeyed. And that's what we're preparing our hearts to celebrate right now through Christmas, that the perfect son of God, Jesus, holy, pure, completely innocent, came to earth born into a stable and lived the perfect life, that he lived the life that you and I were intended to live, that he got it right every single time. He never missed the mark. He hit a thousand for all my baseball fans out there, the two of you. He got it right all the time. It's made him a perfect, sinless sacrifice. The scripture says that he became sin so that we could become righteous, that he took our place, that he took the penalty that you and I deserve so that we might walk in this relationship with God, that now God relates to you and me as if we had never got it wrong. Past, present, future sins all erased on the cross as Jesus paid our penalty. He became sin so that we could become righteous. It's a legal declaration over your life that says you are righteous. But not only that, it says that he saved us which could be transferred or translated that he delivered us. Well, delivered us from what? We'll be frank and not very fun. He delivered us from the wrath of God. And the wrath of God, it, it gets confusing at times, but, but one of my favorite ways to look at it is, is, is the way we see it in Luke chapter 15. This is a weird passage to look at the wrath of God. But we see Jesus telling this story, okay? He's got the same kind of audiences at hand here. He's got some religious people and some irreligious people. And he tells this story. And he says, there's, there's this dad, and he had two sons. And one son, the younger, the younger of the two, came up to his dad and he said, hey, dad, can I just tap in on my inheritance a little early? Which we know we got our inheritance when, when, dad, when dad dies, right? When dad passes on. So basically saying, hey, dad, I just kind of don't really care about you, but I just want your things. I just want your money. And, and the audacity of the dad is he writes a check to his kid. He gives it to him. And the son wanders into modern day Vegas, modern day Amsterdam. Not that those places are entirely bad, but he just spends it all. He lives life the way that he's always wanted to live life, and he does the things that he thinks are best for him and the things that he wants to do. And eventually, we don't know exactly what happens, but the money runs out. 
until this kid who had a bunch of money and was blowing it now all of a sudden has to look for a job and he finds one job and he's picking up pig stuff. This is the wrath of God. Romans chapter 1 says that, that God gives us over to our desires. So when it says that God saves us, it means that he intervenes that we're no longer left to ourselves and our own devices, but that God breaks in to deliver us from ourselves. From the wounds that we currently have, from the, from the past and the, and the current struggle, he says he wants to save us and heal us and transform us. He doesn't just want to declare you righteous, but he wants to set you free. We go from life apart from him to life with him. This is the gospel, that we go from life apart from him, desperate and hopeless, to life with him, that he transfers us from the domain of darkness and transfers us into the kingdom of his beloved son. But not only that, in the finale of the story of the, with this son, and even in verse 11, Paul says this, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. See, the son in the story, he deserves shame. He deserves, to, he deserves to come back to dad's house, which he has this moment where he's picking up the stuff and he says, man, I could go back to my dad's house and I could just earn my way back, you know. Maybe I should just go back as a hired hand. I know he'll accept me. That's better than this. I'll go serve him and work for him. And he deserves, as he comes back, he deserves shame. But the father's response is altogether scandalous. He comes back and it says he's writing this speech and he's, he's, he's prepared to give it to his dad. But it says while he was a long way off, his dad is waiting for him and looking for him. And as he stumbles up with his, with his head held high, his head, his head looking to the ground, it says that his dad runs to him, that he embraces him, that while the son is trying to get his speech out, the father can't help but kiss him, that he's saying, hey, get him the ring, get him the robe, get him all the good stuff, we're throwing a party, it's right to celebrate right now, for this, my son was gone, but now he's here. That God doesn't just declare you righteous. He doesn't just long to save you and deliver you and heal you, but he actually embraces you. One of the biggest struggles in the Christian life is to actually believe that God doesn't just love you because he has to, but that God likes you. I don't know if you guys have any weird Aunt Judys, people that you're going to go see for Christmas right now, that you love them because you have to, that it's like, I don't really want to hang out with Aunt Judy except for on Thanksgiving and Christmas, and I love her, but not really because I want to. I think a lot of us feel that way about God, that he loves us because he's God and he is love and he has to, but that God doesn't see you as an Aunt Judy, but God embraces you, that he loves you, that he likes you, that there's nothing left to prove in his presence, that even on your worst day, God welcomes you to eat at his table and to celebrate and dance. The pressure's off, the burden is light, and the yoke is easy. I love what Psalm 23 in the message version says. It says that we catch our breath in him. I don't know about you, but I need to catch my breath in this season. And it comes as I rest in him. Those who believe in him will not be put to shame. So the gospel is that life with God is available right here and right now. And what's crazy is Paul says that this good news is for everyone. That God says anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And all you have to do is call on him, to put your faith in him, to put your trust in him, to align yourself with him, to surrender and say, God, you're the hero. I can't do it by myself. It's the scandal of the gospel. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But then Paul continues and he says, 
But how is someone supposed to call on someone they've never heard of? This crazy, scandalous announcement, life with God is available to anyone at any time at all, is amazing, but how are the people to know? And he leads us down this persuasional spiral, right? He says, well, they can't call on someone they've never believed in, right? And they can't believe in someone that they've never heard of. And they can't hear about him unless someone preaches it. And you can't preach it unless you're sent. And then he says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And this is the crux of the passage. Are you sent? Are you living sent? But again, it doesn't just start with you being sent. We start with a burden for people, which, which, which overflows from our own experience of the gospel. You cannot give what you have not received. We can't give a message that we are not right now experiencing and longing for and experiencing in our own life. Sharing the good news of Jesus is meant to overflow from our experience with him. Has anybody, does anybody here work at Harold's Donuts before I say, say this illustration? Great, okay. <laughs> I love Harold's Donuts. It's very fine. Um, I used to really like Harold's Donuts, actually, but I, uh, I went to this place in Virginia called Duck Donuts. Anybody ever had Duck Donuts? Yes. See, you see the eyes light up. Anybody who's had Duck Donuts, I see the claps. We see the praise hands because Duck Donuts is the best. It is the best donut you will ever have. It will make Harold's Donuts taste like water, okay? I promise you. Harold's is great, though. I love it. Um, Shout out Columbia. But Duck Donuts, it's amazing, okay? Um, And I used to really like Harold's Donuts. I really did until I tasted something so much better. Like these duck donuts, man, they like, like melt in your mouth. You don't even have to chew. You could have no teeth, and it would just melt in your mouth and you just swallow. It's the best. It's incredible, okay? And when I came back from Virginia, I was telling everybody about duck donuts. I was saying, you guys need to stop eating Harold's because duck donuts is so much better. This is meant to be the way that we are to communicate and live out the gospel. It's that we have tasted something so much better. The scripture says that we are to taste and see that the Lord is good that you've actually experienced that his steadfast love is better than life. And a lot of the times when we talk about sharing our faith, we go right to the practicals, which which I'll get to just here in a second. But the primary means of evangelism in the Gospels and even at the beginning of Acts is people sharing their own experience with Jesus. There's this crazy story in John chapter 4 where Jesus meets this woman at a well. He he crosses cultural... uh, gender, ethnic barriers, and he has this conversation with this woman that no one said that he should ever have a conversation with. And he speaks this word of healing into her life. He, 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 she's, she's covered with shame, covered with guilt, and he speaks into her life and sets her free. And we, we tend to emphasize this story a lot, but what we don't see is what, is what happens after the story, the ramifications of this story, that this woman, she goes back to her own people And then it says this, many Samaritans, which is her culture, believed in him because of this woman's testimony. She had no theological degree. She had no understanding except for Jesus set me free, that Jesus changed me. It's the same thing we see in Acts chapter 4, right? As as Peter and John, they, they testify in front of the Sanhedrin, and the response of the people is altogether crazy. They don't don't look at him and say, man, these guys are so smart. They have this other kind of knowledge that I've always been looking for. They've read all this stuff No, they say, these are ordinary, unschooled, dumb dudes. But I can tell they've been with Jesus. See, being sent is more about your own experience with Jesus. It's that we can't help but share our own experience 
with him. And doesn't this answer so many of our fears and questions and doubts about sharing? I don't know enough. What if they ask that question that I just don't know the answer to? There's this fear, this inadequacy that ends up hindering us from stepping out in faith. But the scriptures teaches us that your story is your qualification. So maybe the question isn't, are you qualified to do this? But are you experiencing Jesus? See, the account in Acts 4, it teaches us that our pedigree or theology is not our qualification, but our nearness to Jesus, our own experience of the gospel. It also teaches us that sharing our faith isn't just for these special evangelistic people with all these talking gifts and can always communicate things, but it's for the ordinary average Christian and that we are all sent. Our organization, we have this, we have this phrase that says 100% sent, that our goal is to have everybody sent. And in some ways, that sounds super big and heroic. And um, even as Elizabeth was sharing that we, we do, we long to send people to the nations. And that sometimes we can get a grasp for. Sometimes we can get a picture for that. But what does it look like to be sent here? To work at VU 9 to 5 and be sent. This is the more predominant one for most of us. What does it look like? And I remember Jeremy sharing this at the membership class. He says, relationship is our strategy. Our strategy to share Jesus with our friends and to participate in the renewal of all things is relationships. Because at the end of the day, isn't that the goal of our faith anyways? It's inviting people into a relationship with God. There's this book. Sometimes I read a book and I just get one phrase and that's all I needed. But there's this book called The Relational Soul. And it has this quote that says, how you relate is how you relate. It's like, really, you got to think about it a little bit. How you relate is how you relate. But their whole point is you can't claim to have a deep relationship with God, but not be able to have relationships with people, that those two things are tethered together. That how you relate is how you relate. So our ability to care and love through relationship, it is a deeply spiritual activity, and it's a witness to the relational God that we come to know. It's why really simple things like inviting someone to a community group is a really evangelistic opportunity. See, our community groups, in a, in a, in a lot of ways, are, are this are this experience of the gospel. It's a moment where you can step into, like we talked about the son being embraced by the father. It's a, it's a space where you can step in and be fully known, seen for who you really are and loved. That you don't have to hide. That's why community and relationships are a witness to the gospel. Relationships are our strategy. And here's how it gets even a little bit more practical. The closer you get to people who are far from God or do not know Jesus, you tend to get a burden for them, one, but then you also, help, like, like Paul did, you get a burden, but you also are able to then see the things that Paul saw. You're able to see what, what's really happening. The more close you are to people, the more you're really to, able to see why their pain is the way that it is and why their struggle is the way that it is. It's, it's, it's like a diet in a lot of ways. That, bro, you are struggling with... Um, <laughs> putting on weight and you're struggling with your heart problems, it's, it's, there's something deeper. It's not just you have a broken heart, it's because you have a bad diet. In a lot of ways, evangelism is just this. What are you doing? What's, what's the system that your life has? And is it working? What are you doing and is it working? And the option to follow Jesus, the offer is to say, hey, I, we've got something better. And what I love is that we have people peppered through this church who are doing this all the time. We have people who have completely reoriented their lives to be around people so they can share Jesus. 
Even this week, I heard a story about a woman in our church who who's in a group message with a bunch of people who do not believe the things that she believes. And they were going on about some other scandal in the church and how the church has this bad reputation. And she just stepped in and said, hey, would you guys mind if I share how I see this as a Christian? And, and, and she went on to, to explain that, hey, we are all broken people and we all need Jesus. And and, and, and it's not the church, but it's, it's Jesus that we, that we really are after. And, and these things tend to fall apart when people stop actually following him. And then she said, I pray for you guys every day, just so you know. And isn't this the perfect picture of what we're after? That there's a burden for people that we long to and we hurt for people, not just in a way that says, oh, that stinks, but it drives us to our knees that we pray. And then we're around them close enough and in proximity to say, this is what you think, but this is what you really are after. And then we have the courage and the faith to step into it and to share the actual good news and the hope. We have people in this church who are doing this all the time. And this is how it flows. When God is renewing our hearts, he gives us a burden for people who don't know him. And the burden becomes a fire in our bones in some ways, and we live sent. How beautiful is the community of people that share the good news? Let me pray.